Hi, it's Carter from Parcast, and I am thrilled to introduce you to my new Parcast limited series, Obituaries. Every Wednesday on Spotify, explore the shared legacies of prolific pairs from the past and discover how those relationships impacted the future. Enjoy this exclusive clip from the first episode and afterwards follow Obituaries on Spotify to finish the story and hear more. Listen weekly, free, and only on Spotify. Due to the graphic nature of this episode, we advise caution for our listeners. This episode contains discussions of violence and sexual crimes against minors. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. April 3, 1968, was a steamy day in Memphis, Tennessee. Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. spoke to thousands of demonstrators at a rally for local sanitation workers. The group was protesting unfair employment conditions. Though on the surface it was a labor protest, at its heart it was intertwined with the civil rights movement. A majority of the sanitation employees were black Americans and they were treated inhumanely by their predominantly white supervisors. Dr. King inspired the crowd with his speech. He told them that their work was not over and a long road lay ahead, but he assured them that someday they would succeed. He concluded by telling the crowd, I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. Tragically, Dr. King's words were prescient. He didn't get to see the promised land with his audience. The speech would be his last. The following day, Dr. King was assassinated. The country was in shock. Millions of people mourned. That evening, 1,000 miles away from Memphis in New York City, the grief and horror of Dr. King's assassination brought two friends together and changed their lives forever. That night would find writers Maya Angelou and James Baldwin finding comfort in each other's friendship and inspire one of the most influential autobiographies of the modern age. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. I'm Carter Roy. And this is Obituaries, a Spotify original from Parcast. Over the next 10 episodes, we're looking at unlikely pairs, giants in their respective fields, who left a deep and lasting impression on the world and each other. Some of these pairs considered themselves allies, some partners, and some bitter rivals. But in every case, their monumental legacies are inextricably intertwined. In this episode, we're exploring the friendship of two literary titans, Maya Angelou and James Baldwin. While they grew up in vastly different places, the American Midwest and New York City, they shared similar childhoods marked by the traumas of growing up black in the U.S. Angelou and Baldwin met in Paris in the 1950s. Yet it wasn't until that tragic night of April 4, 1968, that their friendship truly blossomed. They helped each other grieve for one of the greatest figures in American civil rights history and spawned one of the most important memoirs of the 20th century. Some people read books for fun, others to escape their everyday lives. 
In their early years, Maya Angelou and James Baldwin didn't have the luxury of reading for pleasure. They did it to escape trauma. From a very young age, Maya Angelou was subjected to heartbreak and suffering. She was born in 1928 in segregated St. Louis, Missouri. At the age of three, she witnessed her parents' divorce. In the aftermath, Angelou and her brother were sent to live with their grandmother in Arkansas. Angelou's years in Arkansas were a bittersweet period of her life. She was inspired by her grandmother, a proud spiritual woman, but it was during this time that Angelo's life tragically changed forever. In 1935, at the age of seven, she was raped by her mother's boyfriend. When her family discovered what had happened, Angelo's uncles took revenge on the rapist. They found, then killed him. Most of the family found vindication in the murder, but not Angelo. For her, it made the pain worse. She felt responsible for the man's death. In her young mind, she equated speaking with brutality. So she stopped talking altogether. She later wrote about the event, I thought my voice killed him. I killed that man because I told his name. And then I thought I would never speak again because my voice would kill anyone. For the next five years, while Angelo was silent, she immersed herself in another form of language, books. In the early 1930s, young Angelo devoured every volume she could find. She read adventure books and classics. She studied Edgar Allan Poe and William Shakespeare. Even though Angelo enjoyed Romeo and Juliet, she found that the classics didn't speak to her in the same way as the works of prominent black writers of the time, she gravitated to texts by Langston Hughes and W.E.B. Du Bois. As a young black girl growing up in the 1930s Midwest, Angelo was transfixed by Hughes and Du Bois's candid, honest descriptions of black life in America. She immersed herself in their language and let their vibrant characters become her voice. It wasn't until 1940, when Angelo was 12 years old, that she spoke again. After years of silence, Angelo was coaxed out of her quiet retreat by her neighbor, a black woman named Bertha Flowers. Mrs. Flowers instilled in Angelo a deep respect for the spoken word, encouraging her to seek out her own unique voice. At the same time, Mrs. Flowers urged Angelo to pursue her education. In school, Angelo excelled at most subjects. More importantly, though, she discovered her lifelong passions for song, dance, and performance. During the early 1940s, Angelo's voice, dormant for years, emerged like a brilliant butterfly. She dazzled school audiences in Missouri and eventually California, where she moved with her mother. When Angelo graduated from high school in 1945, however, she was forced to sideline her love for the performing arts. She needed a steady income not only to support herself, but also a newborn son. As a single mother, Angelo took any job that she could find. She worked in a mechanics shop, a hamburger joint, and even served as the first black female streetcar conductor in San Francisco. But while Angelo earned a living, she couldn't shake her love for singing and dancing. 
In the early 1950s, she began supplementing her day jobs with more and more stage work. At first, Angelo sang in local productions and cabaret clubs, but soon she started booking parts in Los Angeles and New York City. Then, in 1954, she found an opportunity to perform internationally. Angelo joined a traveling production of the play Porgy and Bess. With that, she flew all over Europe. It was that trip, during a stopover in Paris, that would lead to a chance encounter and a lifelong friendship. When Angelo arrived in Paris in the mid-1950s, it was a hub of bohemian intellectualism and art. Writers, painters, musicians, and philosophers gathered in cafes to drink and discuss the issues of the day. Angelo fit right in with the artistic scene there. She mingled with up-and-coming artists and spent the wee hours of the night carousing and dancing. That summer in Paris in 1954, Angelo met a budding writer, James Baldwin. Little did the two know that at the time, their lives, though vastly different, had many important similarities. It was that shared experience that would become the basis for their bond over the coming years. Much like Maya Angelou, James Baldwin was born in 1920s America, and his early life was marked by its own kind of trauma. Baldwin and his nine siblings were raised in the heart of Harlem, New York. They lived in a series of cramped, rat-infested tenement apartments. The buildings were often shared by pimps, prostitutes, and other criminals. In spite of the climate outside the Baldwin home, young James's main threat was inside, his stepfather, David. A religious zealot, David terrified his children. He forced them to read the Bible on a daily basis and considered it the only acceptable book in his household. James's stepfather vilified the world outside of their neighborhood. He forbade James and his siblings from going to the theater and other forms of entertainment, and he convinced his children that white society wanted to kill them. James Baldwin's only escape from the tyranny of his stepfather and the crime of Harlem was through reading. He found ways to sneak books into the apartment. He stayed late at school and frequented the library. There, stories transported him to a world outside of Harlem where he could be free. In 1933, at the age of nine, Baldwin wanted more than to just read stories. He began writing his own. Within a year, he wrote a play that was directed and produced by one of his teachers. Baldwin's teachers encouraged him to continue writing. He joined school newspapers and wrote more stories and plays. But for a young black man in 1930s New York, life in the arts was not an easy path. He was subjected to racial slurs and prejudice inside at his school and outside on the streets. Besides the racial obstacles, Baldwin also had to contend with his stepfather's domination. David Baldwin didn't recognize literature outside of the Bible, so he refused to allow James to become a writer. Instead, he forced the teenager towards the life of a preacher. By 1941, however, 17-year-old Baldwin realized the church was not for him. He quit preaching. But his stepfather still pushed him away from writing and into menial jobs. 
In the early 1940s, much like Maya Angelou, Baldwin helped support his family through a series of traditional low-paying jobs. But in 1943, Baldwin's stepfather died. 19-year-old James was free to pursue a career as a writer. Within months, Baldwin moved to Greenwich Village, the hub of art and progressive thought in New York City. Even though it was only a few miles from Harlem, it seemed like a world away. He met actors, writers, and philosophers. In addition to fellow artists, Baldwin also made important connections with editors and publishers. Soon, they recognized his writing ability and hired him to pen literary commentaries and criticisms. But as a black writer, Baldwin's newfound success came with a catch. Editors expected Baldwin to critique only black authors, not writers in general. He was pigeonholed as a black critic. But Baldwin was undeterred by this setback. He plowed ahead, writing about any topics that interested him. Over the coming years, he developed a dedicated following of readers. They were drawn to his style, which was equal parts poetic and brutally realistic. People said he combined the passion of a preacher's sermon with the unflinching honesty of a critic. Baldwin used this passion and honesty to portray the shared experiences of black people. And perhaps most importantly, he shone a light on the systemic racism in America. He wrote, I love America more than any other country in this world. And exactly for this reason, I insist on the right to criticize her perpetually. Even though Baldwin loved America, especially in New York City, he also felt the need to leave his birthplace. In the late 1940s, he decided to head to Paris. Little did Baldwin know the move would not only inspire his work for years to come, but it would also introduce him to one of the most important friends in his life, Maya Angelou. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to check out the new Spotify original from ParCast, Obituaries. Every Wednesday for 10 weeks, discover the unlikely bonds forged between meaningful figures from the past. Follow Obituaries free and only on Spotify. Spotify.